Jude, verses 11 to 16. And let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this evening, our prayer, even as we've just sung, is that your truth would prevail over unbelief. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would challenge us this evening. That as we approach this passage, that we would take serious our call to guard the truth, our call to grow in the truth, our call to go and to make disciples of all the nations. I pray that your spirit would work in each and every one of our lives through the word of God, this passage in Jude this evening. And we pray that you would be honored in Jesus' name. Amen. Jude is a short little book. It's an odd little book. Uh, even as we saw uh, last week, is there's places where it deals with passages that are not necessarily uh, in the Bible, quotations uh, from outside sources. And yet we recognize that in Jude, Jude is the word of God. And so God is at work here as Jude writes. This evening, as we come to this passage, as we work our way through this, Jude is continuing his, his challenge of these apostates. He's pointing out their error and their end because of that error. So as we work through this, Jude will once again give popular examples. He'll give powerful illustrations. He'll then give a prophecy of judgment and then personal descriptions of them. First thing we see in verse 11 is popular examples. Just as Jude did, uh, Jude did last week, starting out in verse 5, where he says, I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. The angels did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode. He has reserved in everlasting chains under the darkness of the judgment of the great day as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. It's kind of a shocking passage as Jude starts there. Because he is, he is connecting to these, these well-known examples, and he's saying that these apostates, these false teachers who have come into your midst, they are like them. They have the same end the same judgment as Sodom and Gomorrah. It's a shocking statement because that's a well-known story. Then everyone would agree. Well, as you come to verse 11, Jude, in similar theme, returns to that same idea with three other well-known, popular examples. He starts here in verse 11 by this pronouncement of judgment. Woe to them. Woe to them. It's a well-known phrase from the prophets of the Old Testament as they would pronounce God's judgment. This is a pronouncement of judgment on these false teachers, these apostates who've crept into the church. In fact, you see that in the language of them. He is singling them out. In fact, as you work through this passage, you'll see that, that Jude very clearly wants us to be aware of who he's talking to. In verse 11, he says, Woe to them, 
Verse 12, these themselves. Then verse 16, these are grumblers. He wants everyone to know these are who I am talking about. These apostates, these false teachers. Woe to them. These apostates who deny Jesus Christ. For they have gone in the way of Cain. Here he is again giving another popular example. We know the story of Cain and Abel, how, how Cain chose his own way. He, choose, he chose not to obey God, but to offer what he wanted to offer. He did not submit to God's will. He did what he wanted to do, and he was judged for it, and he, he killed his brother out of jealousy. We see that in Genesis 4, 1-15, and 1 John 3, 12, where he's called out once again. They've gone in the way of Cain. They do what they want. They're not driven by by. They have not humbled themselves under God. They have not submitted to his word. In fact, when you go back to the very beginning of this book, in verse 4, certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turned the grace of God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our, and our Lord Jesus Christ. That's really a shocking statement there from the very beginning. Who are these men? They're not just men who've kind of twisted scripture a little bit. These are men who have denied Jesus Christ himself. They're no different than Cain, who chose his own way. They run greedy in the era of Balaam for prophets. Again, another well-known example from the Old Testament found in Numbers 22 to 25. Where Balaam, for a large financial reward, devised a plan for Balak, king of Moab, to, to entice Israel into, comp- into a compromising situation with idolatry and morality that would bring God's judgment on his own people. And he did it for profit. He wasn't concerned with godliness, he was concerned with himself. So as Cain went his own way, so they go his own way. Why do they go their own way? They go their own way for profit, like Balaam went for profit. They're all in it for themselves. And perish in the rebellion of Korah. Again, another well-known Old Testament example found in Numbers 16, verses 1 to 32, where Korah and 250 Jewish leaders rejected the God-appointed leadership of Moses and Aaron. They tried to impose their own will on God and on the people, and they were judged for it as the earth opened up and swallowed them in their households. But once again, you see this attitude of, I will do it my way for my purposes. I will get what I want. Again, these are shocking examples, and and it would have been examples that would have grabbed the the audience to whom Judas is writing to and made them to wake up and realize, wow, this is serious. It's as if in our day, when you call someone out, when you compare them to, to Hitler, to some just awful person from history that everybody recognizes is an awful person. That's what's going on here. Everyone knows the story of Cain. Everyone knows Balaam. Everyone knows Korah. And everyone would agree that that is wrong. And that they face just judgment. 
And what Jude is here saying is they are no different. They're in that same camp and they face that. These men, these false teachers who have crept into your church, they face that same judgment. He's not done though. He gives these powerful examples, but then he moves on to now power, or popular examples. Now he gives powerful illustrations. These, again, these men, these false teachers, these apostates, they are spots on your love feasts when they feast with you without fear. That word there that, that's described, that, that's translated here, spots in the New King James. In the ESV, it's hidden reefs. And really, it could be translated either way. Many uh, commentators I looked at and recommended going the way of hidden reefs. But the idea here is a, is a hidden reef, something that is dangerous. It is something that, that as a ship is going, it does not see, and it wrecks into it, and it is destroyed. It is under the surface, but it is dangerous. Or the idea of spots, they pollute everything that goes on in the church because of their lack of faith, because of their apostasy. The idea of love feasts here is a uh, community meal. Don't think of, of love feasts as a, uh, some kind of sensual thing. It is the idea of a gathering of the local church, specifically the idea of gathering around the Lord's table. And these false teachers come to this gathering. They come to the Lord's table, to your community meals as you gather as a church. And they are spots. They are hidden reefs. They are a danger. Something that you don't even recognize is that serious. What do they do at these feasts? They, they, they feast with you without fear. The NIV terms this without the slightest qualm. They don't see any problem with coming to the Lord's table. They don't see any problem with what they are doing. They don't see any need for repentance. Really, you're in a dangerous place when those who deny Christ can comfortably gather in your midst pray that we would never be there. They gather with the church, they come to the Lord's table, to these community meals, and they have no qualm. They see nothing wrong with it. They are serving only themselves. Again, that word serving, in the original language, it's a word that is connected to the idea of a shepherd. In fact, the NIV and the ESV uh, note that. That the word it's translated serving is tied to the picture of shepherding. And really, what, what is most scary about this passage, maybe not what's most scary, but something that stands out here, is, is if that is the case, if that's what Jude is getting at here, that, that these are shepherds among you, then it, it ties to the idea that, that they are leaders in this church. And how can that be that these false teachers, not just that they've crept into your church, but they are leaders among you? And they deny Christ. They serve only themselves. In fact, Paul warns against that very attitude, specifically tied to uh, communion in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty one, 21, when he calls out the Corinthian church. When you gather together, you, you eat before everyone's there. But it's not about you. 
That's the very attitude that these false teachers, that these apostates have. It's about me. It's about what I can eat. It's about serving myself. They are spots or or hidden reefs. They are clouds without water carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit. Clouds without water. Useless. Carried about by the winds. Weightless, just thrown about. Late autumn trees without fruit. This idea of clouds without water and late autumn trees without fruit, it's the same general idea that he's getting at. It's promise without fulfillment. It's the promise of water or the promise of fruit, but in reality it is empty and it is dead. It's useless. There's nothing there. Carried about by the winds. Just thrown around. Taken by this idea or that idea. No conviction. Empty. Useless. Twice dead, pulled up by the roots. What does that mean, twice dead? I think probably what we see here is not a reference to the trees themselves or the illustration here, but it, it, it seems to me as if Jude, and a couple commentaries have looked at, backed this up. Jude here is, is taking a break from the actual illustrations here. Twice dead, probably a reference to these false teachers themselves, a pronouncement of judgment, the second death in the lake of fire. This is where they are heading. Their emptiness. Their apostasy. Their selfishness. Their blatant lack of faith or any humility will condemn them to the lake of fire, the second death. This is their end. They are raging waves of the sea foaming up with their own shame. Raging waves are are, are powerful. But destructive. They're powerful, but they're, they're destructive. They're foaming with their own shame. Wandering stars. This is one way that ancient peoples would refer to planets, which seemed to move across the sky in irregular patterns, unlike the more predictable stars by which they would navigate. These wandering stars, as they saw it, or, or planets, you would not want to set your ship as you're going across the ocean based on those stars. They would lead you astray. They can't be trusted. That's who these false teachers are. They can't be trusted. They shouldn't be followed. We don't know where they're going, but we know their end. That's what Jude points out here. For whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Once again, pointing to their end. Jude here does not shy away from not just calling them out for their apostasy, but proclaiming the reality of hell that they face. And this is not to be taken lightly. The blackness of darkness forever. 
an eternity separated from God under His judgment in hell and the second death. Jude is trying to get across to his audience, brothers and sisters, wake up. How is it that they have crept in? How is it that they have taken leadership? Don't you see how serious this is? Don't you see their end? And if you follow in this path, that is your end. This is not to be taken lightly. This is not to just... I don't want to confront them. That would be mean. Confront them. Speak the truth. Stand up. Get some backbone. Be bold. Because this is a big deal. Next year in verse 14, Jude, having established the emptiness of these men and the judgment that face, now he, he gives a prophecy of judgment. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men, also saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. This is one of those difficult parts of Jude again. Here, Jude, once again, is quoting an intertestamental book, First Enoch 1.9. The point that he makes is true. Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his saints. The point that he's making is that Christ is coming, and he is coming, and he will judge them. That's what he wants to know this. Christ is coming and with him comes justice and judgment. And it's been long known all the way back since Enoch. Enoch. The destruction has been long known. He kind of causes a problem here. First Enoch 1.9. Why, why does Jude quote that? Does that mean that that should be in our canon of scripture? There's other passages that back up this truth. Daniel 7.10 and Matthew 25.31 both reference Christ's coming with thousands of angels. There's other passages that discuss Christ's coming for judgment. So, so what is said here is true. But the question is, why does Jude use Enoch to say it rather than a canonical book? I think as we examine this, we have to pause and we have to recognize that Jude Jude is writing to real people in a real place. And it's clear from his other writings in this book that these real people in a real place had a good knowledge of these pseudepigraphal, non-biblical books. Maybe it was these books that these false teachers were using to, to lead them astray. And so maybe what's going on here is maybe Jude is using a quote from one of those books and saying, look, 
Even that book says it. We don't know, but what we do know is that it is in the Word of God, written by Jude under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So there's a reason why he used it. But what is said here is true that Christ is coming, and with him comes judgment. Notice the language in here to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and all the harsh things which are ungodly sinners have spoken against them. There's a word in there that stands out. It's that word ungodly. Jude here is making a point. These people, they are ungodly. They're not concerned about the things of God. They deny Christ. They twist scripture to get what they want. They turn the grace of God into lewdness. These are ungodly people that have no place in the church. There is no reason that they should be in your midst, much less that they should have authority among you. They face judgment, and if you follow them denying the faith, faith, you will face judgment. Christ is coming. For most of us as believers, that is good news. We rejoice in that. Even so, come Lord Jesus. And yet Jude here is using that to say, with him comes judgment. And if you follow the way of these false teachers, of these apostates, that coming is not good news for you. In verse 16 then, he gives these personal descriptions. Once again, these, these men before you who have I laid out, these apostates, these false teachers, what are they like? They are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts. They mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. They are grumblers and complainers. That word grumblers harkens back to Israel in the wilderness who grumbled against God. They complained against Moses, God's chosen leader. Even as we saw back with Korah. They complained and they grumbled. I think it's important to pause here and to note also the order in which Jude puts these I think we would tend to raise walking according to their own lusts as a bigger deal than grumbling and complaining. But Jude puts them all together. Grumbling and complaining. How many of us grumble and complain without even thinking about it? How many times have you ever confessed of grumbling or complaining? We don't see it as that big of a deal. But it is. Grumbling and complaining questions the sovereignty of God. It questions his goodness. It is one of the marks of these apostates. If nothing else, that should just kind of shock us and grab our attention and cause us to say, maybe I should think twice before grumbling or complaining. They are grumblers, they are complainers, they are not satisfied and what God has done. They are walking according to their own lusts. We've seen this from the very beginning of the book, even in verse 4. 
They turn the grace of God into lewdness. They are concerned about themselves, about their own lusts, satisfying their fleshly desires. It is these lusts that, that leads them, which, which really ties back to the idea of clouds without water. They're just they're carried about by their own lusts, whatever, whatever they feel like, just floating through life without any direction, without any concern for the word of God, for the lordship of Jesus Christ. They walk according to their own lusts. They mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. This is their end goal, to gain advantage. They are after pleasure and they are after power. And you have let them in the church. They have no place in your midst. As we see, as we'll see, Lord willing, in the coming weeks, it's at this point that then Jude turns his attention. Verse 17, but you, beloved, remember. So going forward, we'll see at this point, Jude turns his attention and he admonishes and challenges his audience. But it's important for him to call them out, to lay this foundation for them to see how serious is this sin, how wrong are these teachers, and where is their end. Do not be tempted to follow them. So a couple points of application as we come to the end of this passage. Number one, brothers and sisters, guard your hearts. Guard your hearts. Sometimes we look around at the state of the church in America and we become discouraged and we should become discouraged. And yet notice that there's always been problems in the church. Even in this first century church to which Jude is writing, there are people who deny Jesus Christ who have found their, play, their way to a place of leadership in these churches. That is a big deal. And how does that happen? It's because the people of the church don't guard the truth. They don't guard their own hearts. We must guard our hearts, each and every one of us. We must know the truth so that we can defend and proclaim the truth. We must not be taken by temptation. We must flee from it. We must fight it. How do we guard the truth in this church? How do we guard this pulpit? It starts in your own personal life. Guard your doctrine. Know your Bible. Be committed to submitting to Christ. To growing in Him. That's how you guard this pulpit. And then if there ever is a challenge to the truth from this pulpit, you can stand up with confidence on the Word of God. Hopefully all of you together. But if you don't know the truth, if you're not guarding your own heart, you cannot guard this pulpit. So know it. Guard your own hearts. And then stand for the truth. Be bold. Be convinced and be committed. Here I stand. I can do no other. 
I will not falter. I will not stray. Guard your hearts. Stand for the truth and proclaim the gospel. One thing that a, a passage like this, where Jude very boldly and very clearly points out the end of these teachers. He uses language that, that points to hell itself. That should grab our attention and cause us to wake up and to see that there are, that hell is a real place. And there are people here in Altoona, Iowa, who will die tonight and go to hell. And we know the gospel. And we're too scared to share it. And you come to a passage like this, any passage that, that draws our minds to hell as a warning, it should motivate us to share the gospel. It should be a reminder, a call, that this is a real place. And this gospel that we guard and that we stand for and that we proclaim is a gospel that saves. And we must proclaim it. Lord, give us beautiful feet to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to our neighbors, to our friends, and to our communities. Brothers and sisters, the Lord is coming. For us here in that church who our hope is in Christ, that is great news. And yet there's a world around us for whom that is not good news. But we know it, so let's go and let's tell. Guard your hearts, stand for the truth, and proclaim the gospel. We're going to close this evening by singing the song, May the Lord find us faithful. May the Lord find us faithful. I hope that is the prayer of your heart. Even as we look at a passage like this, may it challenge us to be faithful so that when the Lord comes, we are found faithful. Let's stand together and let's sing number 429, May the Lord find us faithful.